This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his book, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, our guest today, conservative historian and former military officer Andrew J. Basevich, argues that if our nation is to survive its current predicament, it will need the revival of a distinctly American approach, the neglected tradition of realism. Basevich is a professor of history and international relations at Boston University and a Vietnam War vet who spent 23 years serving in the U.S. military. His writings have appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic Monthly, The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. Andrew J. Basevich, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, thanks very much for having me on your program. How are you doing today? Very fine. Very good. Now, before we get started, just a, a real basic question. Could you describe what it is we're talking about? What is American exceptionalism? Well, I think it's this uh, longstanding uh, conviction, uh, really going back to the founding of Anglo-America in the 17th century, uh, that we are the new chosen people, uh, and that as the chosen people, uh, we've been endowed by God or providence or history with a particular responsibility to the world and that that, in turn, allows us to claim unique prerogatives. What makes American exceptionalism distinct from other exceptionalisms? Is there something about it that stands out? Not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not a student of comparative exceptionalism, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Uh, and I'm, I, I don't think I would claim that uh, ours is unique. Mm. What I would want to claim is that the existence of American exceptionalism has imparted to U.S. foreign policy a particular spin that uh, once arguably served the nation very well, but that today no longer does, and that therefore the persistence of this belief that we are a chosen people, the chosen people, now uh, impedes our ability to see ourselves as we are and to see the world as it really is and to act accordingly. Now, now you just said that exceptionalism served us very well. Uh, How did it serve us well, and what turned the tide against us? Why is it not serving us well now? Yeah, what I I try to uh, depict in the book uh, very uh, uh, briefly, perhaps too briefly to be entirely persuasive, is a narrative of U.S. foreign policy that uh, portrays U.S. foreign policy from the very outset as one that is bent on expansionism. And American exceptionalism uh, expressed using different language at different times really provided much of the moral justification for that expansionist project. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that all through the 19th century and through more or less the first half of the 20th century, this expansionism uh, enhanced American power, 
enhanced American material prosperity and in many respects made freedom available to a growing proportion of the American people. When I make that argument that that exceptionalism therefore had positive effects, I'm not trying to argue that the expansionist project in and of itself was moral. I don't think that it, it was. But I am arguing that it produced substantive benefits for the American people. Once you get up to roughly the 1960s, I argue that further efforts at expanding American power no longer enhance American prosperity and freedom, but actually have had the reverse effect, that an expansionist policies now undercut our prosperity and compromise our freedoms. And I think that President Bush's global war on terror uh, is a prime example of how an expansionist policy undercuts our prosperity, squanders our power, and compromises our freedom. We're speaking with Andrew Basevich. The book is The Limits of Power. And you said it was around the 1960s where we, where we hit that wall uh, when exceptionalism turned against us. I know in, in the uh, book you spoke of the transition from Johnson to Nixon. Is, am I uh, speaking correctly here? Is, is that when you think that uh, it, it really started turning against us? Well, I wouldn't want, in a sense, to... Uh, I think one, would, would, one ought to be very cautious and sort of uh, identifying presidential administrations as this kind of the, the markers, because that seems to suggest that it's something that this president did or that president did that was decisive. I think I, I would want people to consider the possibility that the, the turn, as it were, when expansionism no longer works uh, is one that is the reflection of a whole host of factors. Uh, Some of them are cultural. Uh, Some of them have to do with um, the probably inevitable uh, uh, decay of the enormously uh, advantageous position that the United States found itself in at the end of World War II. So it wasn't simply that this president or that president made a decision. When you say that it was uh, tremendously advantageous, was it a case of having too much power? Is, is, is that what happened? It was uh, swell-headedness? Uh, I, you know, you could probably make that argument. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we, you know, when the war ends in 1945, uh-huh. uh, of course, our chief competitors... Uh, the chief, well, not all, but the the preeminent competitors of Germany and Japan have been simply uh, destroyed. Uh, other competitors for power, uh, France, Great Britain, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, deeply uh, damaged as a consequence of World War II. We are, by comparison, untouched by the war. Uh, our economy is completely intact. Matter of fact, the war has finally ended the Depression and uh, sort of got the American economy going uh, full bore uh, once again. Uh, we, we, at that moment, are in sole possession of, of nuclear weapons. Uh, we, at that moment, uh, sort of own uh, advanced
advanced technology in many respects. So it's a remarkably advantageous position that is one of the fortuitous outcomes of World War II, maybe not fortuitous, because I think to some, in some respects that outcome reflects Franklin Roosevelt's uh, carefully considered intentions of how he wanted to fight World War II in order to try to ensure that we benefited from the outcome. This this seems to be it is a confluence of of uh, events and circumstances that brought us to this point. We 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 didn't have to defend our own shores in World War II. We had tremendous assets here in terms of our resources and our and our manufacturing capability. And the rest of the world really was bearing the brunt of the real violence during that war. Right. Uh, and we stood astride the world after World War II with a, something I heard at one point. We had 50% of the gross national product for the entire world after that, the other world. In terms of, of productive capacity, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. And we, also, we should not uh, overlook the fact that in 1945, we are the world's Saudi Arabia. I mean, we are the number one producer of, of oil. Uh, we're not dependent on others for these strategic resources at that point. That, too, is another uh, example of how we find ourselves in this uniquely advantageous position in 1945. So so these great circumstances, these uh, very advantageous circumstances, sort of, in a matter of speaking, didn't it sort of bake into the cake, this idea that, and this is too facile a way to put it, but we woke up on third base and we thought we hit a triple. Is that is that too easy a way of of uh, of putting this in a sense that yes, it was our own. Of course, we had our own ingenuity and our own drive and determination, and we were smart and strategic. However, th- this sort of role that we were on was unprecedented in world history, and didn't that in, in didn't that in a way really kind of presume that we were exceptional? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, uh, uh, that that the, the wake up on third base was a, a good, good way to put it. I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't that we had uh, not hit the ball. We had we'd hit it well. We'd hit it very skillfully, but the the payoff ended up being probably much greater than, uh, in a sense, we deserved. I suppose, uh, and and there was this. Uh, um, you know, if, if you contrast post the post-World War II period to the 30s, which is only a difference of, you know, a decade or so, 1930s, there's substantial opinion in the United States that, you know, liberalism was shot, that uh, capitalism didn't work. Uh, there were doubts about the long-term viability of American institutions. Uh, there was uh, an indigenous radicalism that... Uh, at least had a certain uh, appeal in some quarters, both on the far left and on the far right. But the experience of the war sweeps all that aside mm-hmm. uh, and renews the American belief in the superiority of the American uh, way of life. Well, as we come out of World War II, by the way, we're speaking with Andrew Basevich in the book is The Limits of Power, um, the end of American exceptionalism. It, we come out of World War II with the greatest military uh, machine in the history of the world, and we have on the other side of the world kind of a perfect foil in that with the Soviet Union uh, and and its determination to rebuild itself and to set up a a uh, an area around it uh, a sphere of influence which would preclude it from ever being attacked like it was in World War II, which looked 
and 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 felt like expansionism on the part of the Soviets. So we had an. Oh, and I, I mean, I would, I think we should call it expansionism. Well, and, yeah, it was, but it was, it was, and it was, but it was also in looking at the 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 horror that had visited upon the Soviet Union in World War II, the the loss of somewhere between fifteen and twenty million people, I believe, is the number. Am I that factually? Correct. Uh, you know, I don't know the number, but that's certainly uh, in the ballpark. It yeah. is an enormous no- number relative to uh, U.S. losses. So suddenly, we have a, a a large military on the other side of the world with, with an uh, with an eye towards expanding its sphere of influence, and now we have two of these basically enormous armies facing off, and this gave us a, a moral a sense of moral clarity when it came to what we needed to do in the world. Well, I I differ with your narrative just in this sense, and that is that we didn't have an enormous army. Mm. Uh, I mean, in in the after VJ Day, Mm. when World War II ends, the conventional United States military, for all practical purposes, disintegrates. Mm. Remember, it was a draft army, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think I think the total strength of U.S. forces in VJ Day is twelve million. a very large percentage of those who were draftees, people who were drafted for the duration, and the duration had now ended, and they said, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the delusion to which we succumbed uh, at that point was the notion that because we possessed the bomb, that the disintegration of our conventional forces was uh, a problem, uh, but not necessarily a disaster. Mm. What happens is it, when in 1949, when the Soviets uh, detonate their nuclear weapon, uh, breaking the nuclear monopoly, uh, that comes as this enormous shock to the system, to the American political elite, who now at that point, at that point, are in a frenzy of panic about uh, what to do. To, now that the Soviets have a bomb and a big army, and we have a bomb and a small army, mm-hmm. about what to do. And it's only with uh, the uh, summer of 1950, when North Korea invades South Korea, that the Truman administration signs off on the document called NSC-68, which commits the United States to permanent rearmament, and in essence commits the United States from that point forward, to a quite militarized approach to uh, foreign policy. We're speaking with Andrew Basevich. The book is The Limits of Power. And I'm going to move it up here because uh, we have about 10 minutes left. I want to start talking about present day. Uh, You spoke out, speaking of expansion, uh, against the expansion of the war in Afghanistan just recently. Can you talk a little bit about that, your reasoning behind that? Well, I mean, there's a couple ways to cut at, come at it, and I think the most important way is um, to examine, to, to, to place Afghanistan in the broadest possible strategic uh, context. And I guess the way I tell the story is this way. In the wake of 9-11, the Bush administration launches this enterprise that they called the Global War on Terror. And the setting aside all of the claims about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or Saddam Hussein being in cahoots with al-Qaeda and so on, the concept, the, dry, the core concept to which the Bush people 
subscribed was the conviction that the United States could employ its power, principally hard power, in order to transform conditions in the greater Middle East so that countries in that region would no longer uh, give rise to the terrorists who want to attack us and change the conditions in that part of the world so that they would no longer breed jihadists. And the Bush administration believed that the place to begin that project was Iraq, that Iraq was going to be easy, uh, toppling Saddam, converting Iraq into either a liberal democracy, if you were talking to Paul Wolfowitz, or a pliant uh, a, a subordinate state, if you probably were talking to Donald Rumsfeld. Well, Iraq turned out to be not easy, but very difficult. Uh, here we are six-plus years later. Uh, we still got over 100,000 troops there, and the place is a mess, having cost us a trillion dollars and 4,000-some soldiers. Obama runs for the presidency critical of the Iraq War uh, and saying, I understand that that's not the central front. He wins the election, and now, in fact, what he's doing, I think, is not with perfect fidelity, but with near fidelity. He's, he's taking this, this intended project of transformation and shifting the focus from Iraq to what they're now calling AFPAC. But the going-in assumption remains the same, that the United States possesses the wisdom and the power to determine the fate of places like Afghanistan and Pakistan, and that in determining the fate of those places, we will make sure that Afghanistan and Pakistan don't breed terrorists that want to attack us. My view is that we don't have the capacity, the wisdom, the power, to determine the fate of these places. And therefore, for this new president, who has promised to change everything, to, in essence, double down our bet on Afghanistan and to expand the campaign of UAV attacks in Pakistan, that amounts to a very bad decision that, uh, that, that, that fails uh, to engage the sort of first-order questions that a president should ask at the beginning of his term. Now, you have pretty much predicted that. You pretty much said that it didn't really matter whether Obama or uh, McCain were elected as far as our Middle East policy goes. Uh, well, I mean, let me, can I just interrupt? I, I don't uh -huh. mean that it doesn't matter. I mean, I voted for Obama, and I'm uh -huh. glad he won, and I'm glad McCain lost. But I do think that given all the sort of uh, uh, the, 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 the grandiose expectations that the transition from one administration to another changes everything, I just think people should realize that that's an illusion, that there are very important continuities uh, that help explain why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those most important continuities, and I disagree with them, I'm not trying to endorse them, but I think that the, the most important continuities that we need to recognize have to do with certain habits uh, in the realm of basic national security policy, I believe Obama basically has endorsed those old habits. It, it, it's quite stunning to uh, you just look at Iraq as an example to me. We defeated them militarily in 1991 uh, and then spent the next uh, dozen years or more 
uh, with a no-fly zone, essentially neutering any ability that they had to re to amass another substantial right. military operation, mm-hmm. and then invaded them again, mm-hmm. and were still unable to bring what we believe to be, uh, in our in our judgment, a sense of order and democracy uh, to this country. And now we're heading to Afghanistan, which has been the burial ground for empires, the British mm-hmm. and the and the yeah. Russians. I'm with you. And what yeah. what is it? You, you were talking about these forces that are at, at play. Are they, are these anti-American forces within our within our government that would, would that would? How is it that we can see past all of this and not see the forests, the trees here? Why is it we cannot? And why are we never discussing this in our political campaigns? In the presidential campaign, we never discuss empire in any well, substantial way. We, we, we don't we don't discuss the things that you're suggesting we should discuss yeah. because uh, there is, I think, a very broad consensus to which uh, Republicans and Democrats alike subscribe. And there is, I think, a general view in the political world that if you depart from that consensus, you will not possess any credibility. I, I, I disagree with you just a little bit in your uh, description of the last campaign, because there were two candidates who posed the fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. And the one on the right was Ron Paul, yeah. and the one on the left was Dennis Kucinich. Yeah. And quite frankly, just to announce their names makes the point. You know, they each got about 1% of the vote, each, of, each, I think, was depicted in the press as kind of, uh, you know, quasi-lunatic, somebody who really couldn't be trusted to know what the heck was going on. Right. Uh, and, and that exemplifies, reinforces uh, the consensus. So, the, to me, the essence of the consensus, the thing, that, the thing that is smack in front of our faces, but nobody wants to sort of talk about it and consider the implications, is what I've come to call the sacred trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sacred trinity consists of uh, forces configured for global power projection, uh, the maintenance of a global military presence, and a, a, a habit of global activism. You know, a belief that you know, if something's going on in the world, we have to be there to try to figure out how to sort it out. And, and these become really the concrete expressions of what politicians uh, really refer to when they use the phrase global leadership. Yeah. Global leadership really means that we're going to configure our forces for, for power projection. We're going to maintain forces around the world. And either overtly or covertly, we are going to be sticking our fingers in whatever problem uh, we think uh, has any relevance to our concerns. I'm going to amend one thing that you just said, just from my perspective, uh, Andrew Basevich, and that is, whenever I hear the phrase American interests, I know that we're in for, for some a rough, rough ride. It means that we're probably going to be entered, anytime there's a threat to the American interest, it usually means we're going to introduce a military solution, and that well, frightens, uh, frightens but, yeah, See, I, I, I probably disagree with, with you in, in this sense. I mean, I, I, I would agree that that phrase or that word, interests, gets used uh, in such a permissive way that it can cover almost anybody doing anything anywhere. That's why I mean it. But I would argue that a serious evaluation of interests is actually a prerequisite for sound policy. What are the things that matter to us that we have to care about? There are some things. 
Uh, but what doesn't follow is anything that happens anywhere affects U.S. interests. And, of course, that's, that tends to be the default position of people who are in the business of national security. And I agree with exactly what you said, and I meant it in that context. <laughs> so uh, now I just have one last thing. It's sort of an out-of-the-blue question for you, and that we haven't touched on the economy of the United States and, and all of that, how this is affecting us. Do you believe that the, the strength of the U.S. military, the dominance of the U.S. military, is one of the reasons why people still accept the U.S. dollar in terms of the international currency, as an international currency? you think our military has a direct impact on why it's still accepted? Uh, I don't think I'm smart enough in economics to, to really have a, a serious opinion. My, my sort of wild guess is no. And frankly, I think that one of the... You know, were I sitting in uh, Moscow, Beijing, London, you name a capital, one of my lessons of the past uh, eight years or so would have been that the American military really is not as strong as we once thought mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, here we have a military that's bogged down in at least two wars or, or three if you count Pakistan. Uh, so, you know, American soldiers are, are brave and capable and well-trained, and we have incredible technology. Uh, but the notion that the dominant American military is the chief problem solver in the world, I think basically uh, that's been demolished. Well, is, uh, one one more thing too. I'm going to jump in here too. Do you, is there a first step out of this? Is there a first step to to break the hold of the sacred trinity? Is there a way for to turn this around? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the first step is to uh, you know to realistically appraise um, U.S. history of the past fifty, sixty years. Mm -hmm and therefore to come to an understanding of what military power can do and can't do. Uh, I think it's tremendously important. It would be important. It's not going to happen. If we would uh, evaluate uh, what we mean by freedom in this country mm -hmm. and what, what genuine freedom requires. Uh, you know, and, 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 uh, but, but those, again, those are the sorts of things that our politics doesn't really accommodate, uh, and that's why I tend to be a pessimist and think that we're just going to continue to blunder on down the path we've been blundering for too long. Yeah, I, I tell you, uh, I'm th th this is uh, this discussion. I would love to talk with you at at. I, we've, I feel like we just scratched the surface. This is a wonderful book, uh, "The Limits of Power: The End of American Exceptionalism." Andrew Basevich, thank you so much for being here with us on Weekly Signals. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.